of verses 12 to 17. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this lovely chapter of your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit may help us again to understand it, take it to heart, and put it into practice in our lives for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. Now, brothers and sisters, we haven't time to look, I'm sorry to say, at uh, verses 3 to 11 in any kind of detail. I've given you some clue in the notes, and it may be that you might like to uh, follow those through and think about them a little bit more. Uh, You hardly need me to say that suffering in the Christian life can be a distraction in running the race. Uh, Getting to that wall of pain or getting to that point of difficulty can be uh, a means of um, drifting and even of uh, falling out of the race. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to encourage uh, Christians to understand that if they have to go through suffering, be it persecution for Christ, or be it suffering of any kind, be it, uh, there's several words in the New Testament for suffering, persecution being one of them, but also thlipsis, a Greek word which means pressures, the kind of uh, suffering of hard times, the annus horribilis, the the difficult years, the difficult times. Uh, We live in a fallen world, and Christians get flu, and sadly get cancer the way other people do. The difference is that we don't have to cope with it on our own, is that Christ has promised to be with us, And as we look through it to the future we have, it can keep us on the road and keep us uh, sensible and sane through the sufferings of life. But I want us to think for a few moments uh, about the whole issue of suffering because it's so important. Uh, A very good friend of mine is Archbishop Ben Kwashi, who's in northern Nigeria, the Archbishop in Josh. I don't know if you've ever had him here, have you? Sometime in a visit to England, Clive, he's a man to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's uh, right on the front line of the Christian witness against Islamic extremists. More than 500 Christians have been killed in Jos. Churches have been burned down. His life has been threatened. His uh, wife has been beaten up to within an inch of her life. And each day he never knows if it's going to be his last. I listened to him um, in Nairobi at GAFCON conference a couple of years back, 18 months or so ago, 
<clears throat> and he said something that he has a right to say, but is enormously helpful. He said, let's wake up, let's understand that in this world, everybody suffers. Everybody, Christian, non-Christian, all of us suffer. As Johnny Erickson Tada again puts it in a different way, it's only in, it's only in heaven Kleenex goes out of business. <laughs> There'll always be a reason now and again, here and there, whatever the sunshine and whatever the good times for which we thank God, there will be times of suffering. And Ben Kwashi said, let's get real, all of us suffer. But he said, if you're a non-Christian, you suffer for nothing. There's no reason for you to suffer. And there's, there's no point in it all. It's just random and meaningless. However, if you are a Christian, you suffer for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And you suffer for a Lord because he's still the sovereign Lord who can work good even out of tragedy. And when we look at the cross, we see that. We see uh, people who were jealous, people who rigged the sham trial for the Lord Jesus, uh, people out of, out of mixed and sinful motives nailed him to the cross and uh, would be held accountable by God for that. But nonetheless, as Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, it was the, for, it was the uh, determined purpose of God that the Lord Jesus might go to Calvary. Why was he there? Because that was the plan of God. And through it all, God overruled sovereignly over those events, even to work good out of tragedy and even evil. And that's a wonderful God to believe in, isn't it? That even in the hard times of life, he can work good, even out of difficulty. Ben Kwashi, if you suffer for Jesus, you suffer for the one who can turn, um, who can turn it for good and overrule it for blessing. And then he went on to say, when the Islamic gunmen come to your door and want to kill you, they won't care whether you're lukewarm for Jesus or red hot for Jesus. But he said, Jesus will. So he said, you suffer. Don't suffer for nothing. Suffer for Jesus. And when you're suffering for Jesus, be red hot for him in the process. Isn't that terrific? Well, um, I came across uh, something, if I can find it wherever I put it, uh, a little bit of research you might be interested to know. Uh, I did a little bit of research in Basingstoke. Ah. Uh, th that's very good. Okay. And I discovered that John Newton was here um, in um, 1800. And he wrote a letter afterwards about his visit, and he said to his friends, my love to Basingstoke. Come on, a bit louder. <laughs> oh. So he obviously loved the visit. But he wrote a hymn, and listen to it, because it relates to what I'm trying to say this morning. Their troubles assail and dangers affright. Their friends should all fail and foes all unite. Yet one thing secures us, Whatever betide, the scripture assures us the Lord will provide. And in a way, you could specially claim that as your, your hymn um, because uh, he wrote it after his visit here. And it's, it's very good, isn't it? Or to quote, I've quoted Ben Quashie and John Newton. Now let me quote Jim Packer from Hot Tub Religion. 
And Jim Packer quoting Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, uh, here's what Jim Packer says, it is a mistake to imagine that God's goal is our unbroken ease and comfort. It is rather our sanctification and Christ-likeness, the true holiness that is the highway to happiness. Constant ease and comfort, therefore, are not to be expected. Yet Christians may nonetheless derive constant contentment from their knowledge that God is making everything that happens to them a means of furthering and realizing the glorious destiny that is theirs. And here he quotes Richard Sibbs, whatever is good for God's children, they shall have it, for all is theirs to further them to heaven. If crosses be good, they shall have them. If disgrace be good, they shall have it, for all is ours to serve our common good. To understand this is to have the secret of abiding contentment in one's grasp. See, it took me a long time to understand something, and I go on needing to understand it again and again. As I told the men last night, I'm a bit of a petrol head, and I really think it would be wonderful and uh, a real uh, blessing for me and a joy. That wouldn't be a joy. Um, but it would be a real blessing and joy if God was to give me a Ferrari. <laughs> um, I have in my study, I have several uh, Ferraris, 118 size like that, models that the kids have given to me, my children have and others over the years. I haven't noticed, despite my prayer life, that God has made any of them grow. <laughs> I had a businessman who's a friend, um, who's an accountant in the city of London. He has a Ferrari. He takes it out one day a year. It's, he has it for an investment. I offered to look after it for 364 <laughs> days a year. He wasn't very keen. And I said, Lord, I'm a bit disappointed that... Um, You've never seen to it that I have a Ferrari. But you see, it's taken me some while to understand that God's priority for me is not my ease and comfort and the fulfillment of my wishes. God's priority for me is far better, is that I might be made more like Jesus, that I might become like him. And if tough times uh, need to come into my life, to teach me to learn and to lean more on the Lord Jesus, then they'll come. And God will use those things. And I want you to think a little bit more about that. It's a big subject, and this passage doesn't say everything it could say about suffering. But it does say, uh, when you're going through hard times, uh, remember, uh, remember three things. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's possible to become weary in the Christian life, faint-hearted, and to be distracted by suffering. But consider the Lord Jesus. Consider him. Now, I want you to think for a moment of, uh, just turn over to 1 Peter 2, how this affected Peter. Verse 21 of 1 Peter 2, he says, talking about suffering, 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice that mostly in the New Testament, uh, the writers of the New Testament talk to us about what Jesus did on the cross and then say, follow his example. But here Peter says, just think of how he took suffering, how the Lord took suffering. And that must have been emblazoned into his mind because he was there in the courtyard. He saw the sham trial. He saw the quietness and the confidence of Jesus in the face of his accusers. And it it deeply imprinted itself in his heart and mind. And then he goes on to explain the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Consider the Lord Jesus. And verse 4, back in Hebrews 12, in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted the point of shedding your blood. Remember how far Jesus went for you, and he doesn't call you to go anything like ever as far as the agony for him of the cross, which was the feeling of abandonment by his Father, was the Uh, what seemed like the rift in the Trinity in the experience of the Lord Jesus. That was a real agony of the cross for him, not just the physical suffering of the barbarity of physical crucifixion, but what he went through for you and for me. And uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, God hasn't called you that far. And, And even if he does remember this, he'll never be as far as the suffering of Jesus... But even if you have to give your life for him, remember that he gave his life for you. And consider him. You see, Jesus was not abandoned by the Father on the cross. The Father didn't give up on his unique beloved Son. The proof of that is in the resurrection. And if Jesus was allowed to go through that suffering for a particular purpose for the redemption of the world, without becoming unloved or being abandoned by God, what makes us think that we would ever be abandoned by the God who loves us so as to give his son to die for us? Now, when we're tempted to feel, God, why is this happening? Do you still love me? What's all this about? Is consider Jesus. And remember that God overrules, even in the suffering of his unique son. He did not abandon him. He did accomplish his purpose through him. And he displayed that by the resurrection. And no more than the father would let his son down, his unique son down, God will not let down those whom he's redeemed because of what Christ has done. Consider him. And secondly, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world which is struggling because of, of, uh, of rebellion against God. Not, it's not a question of suffering because comes because of individual uh, rebellion, generally speaking. It's not like that. But 
but the rebellion of the whole world. We live in a fallen world, and part of that until God cleans up the mess and brings a new heaven and a new earth and gathers His redeemed people when uh, there will be no more suffering or pain, and that'll be a great thing. God overrules through the ups and downs of life, actually, to bring us to a new dependence upon Him, to learn to lean in a new way on Him, and to learn from Him. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It's true, isn't it? And if I, at the time, to go around everyone here this morning, I'm sure uh, you would be able to say, many, many, many of you would echo what I'm about to say, and that is, we learn more about Christ, and He feels closer to us through the hard times than through the sunshine. Uh, it took me a long time to be able to thank God for the death of my dad, to be able to say, thank you, Lord, that you overruled it. Thank you, number one, that you called him home because he belonged to you. But thank you that you used that in a young man, me, who would by nature have been eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You used that to make me think about eternity. And you used that to bring me to yourself. God uses all sorts of things. And rather than um, just be distracted by suffering, we need to learn to trust Him. It is for discipline that you have to endure. I remember, if I may be personal, I remember and my daughter is now 32, but when she was a little girl, she could not, she was generally very teachable, much more easily teachable than my son, who was harder work, but just as, one, just as nice but harder work. But Jessica just could not see the danger of fire. Just could not see it. And I remember the day when I had to let her be just a little bit burned in order to see the danger of fire and keep away from it. And, and that was one of the hardest things as a dad to uh, just let her burn herself a little bit, but not badly because I couldn't get through to her how dangerous the whole thing was. And it's true that God, through the suffering of life, teaches us. And then look what uh, the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 11. Well, verse 10, for they disciplined us, our human parents, for a short time as it seemed best to them, and sometimes it wasn't always best, human discipline, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the, uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A Christian Life and Witness course that was attached to the Billy Graham uh, mission says this, suffering makes us better or bitter. And I've always think, thought that's a, a brilliant phrase that sums it up, that if in the challenges of life we turn to God, we grow in our faith. We learn to trust Him. Christ seems near. He provides for us. Uh, but if we, um, if we allow suffering to distract us, then it simply hinders the race. So we need to consider Him. Well, uh, much more could be said about that, but we haven't got time to do that. So I want you to move on, if you would, with me to uh, verse 12 to 17. Because if uh, our first session was look to Jesus, 
and in the sense I've been talking about consider Jesus, uh, this main thrust of what I want to say is be like Jesus. The word that connects uh, verses 3 to 11 and 12 to 17 is the word holiness. In verse 10 and in verse 14, there's the word. To go back to the point I've already made is that God's desire for you and for me is that we become like Him. Uh, DNA is an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, it's sometimes quite a challenging thing when you're a parent, isn't it, to see uh, not, not only family traits, but some of your own idiosyncratic sort of little things come out in your kids. Uh, we have a, a granddaughter who's just one, and uh, she never knew her grandma, my mum, uh, who died in 1983. Uh, but my mum had a very distinct way uh, when she didn't quite approve of something but wanted to be good-humoured about it, um, to let us know she didn't approve, but be, uh, as I say, good-humoured about it, she would screw up her nose in a particular way and go. Uh, at the dinner table the other day, uh, Bethany looked at us and went, and I thought, that's my mum. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Is, is DNA the way it comes out through the generations? And uh, what God has made us as his children, he wants us to show in the, the family DNA. Uh, look, look at Ephesians uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Learn, uh, learn the way of Christ. The way of joy is not letting the world revolve around us. You know, the world says you deserve it. Uh, take whatever you want. Try and get it. If you have to step in a few people's head in the process, too bad. Now, the Christian way is to say the way of real living and fulfillment is to follow the way of Christ. It's the way of service. It's the way of imitating the Lord. It's letting the family DNA come out. It's learning to love people because Christ loved us when we weren't lovable. And we're called to love people even when they're not lovable either. I once, uh, not so long ago, watched a kid walk behind his father who had a particular interesting step, you know, um, that kind of a step, you know, are there any farmers here? No, I'm safe. I always call it the farmer's step, but you know what I mean? And, and here was a, a nine-year-old lad walking behind his dad going <laughs> like that. He was imitating his dad. And uh, what uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 5 is imitate the Lord Jesus. Learn to, learn to be like him. Uh, let your prayer and your aspiration be for holiness. And holiness, the trouble is, it's been so uh, misused as a word, kind of a stained glass 10 feet above contradiction. No, no, holiness is Christ's likeness. It's being conformed to the image of his son. And that, says Paul in Romans 8, is the reason for which 
you and I have been saved. Well, if holiness is the word that connects the two passages, look at verse 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Aristotle, uh, long before the writer of the Hebrews, used this phrase as a definition of falling out of a race, of not completing a race, of an athlete um, uh, dropping out of a race. And it's very graphic, isn't it? Drooping hands, I mean, that's what happens. You see athletes, don't you, who are just exhausted. Instead of being like that, the hands go down and the knees become weak. And um, the writer of the Hebrews says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, therefore, because of keeping your eyes on Jesus and considering him, lift up your drooping hands and your weak knees that you may run the race. Uh, I want you to, uh, have you got the roaming, roving mic there, Clive? If you could, somebody, uh, so I know you're still awake with me, Somebody read Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. First to find it. Stick your hand up and Clive will come with the microphone. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Thank you. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Thank you. Um, or as the ESV, say to those who have an anxious heart. In the Christian life and in Christian living, sometimes we feel anxious as believers. Say to those who are of anxious heart, strengthen your weak hands and your feeble knees. Be strong and do not fear for the Lord will come. As you look to him, he will help you. Or as the NLT, the New Living Translation, helpfully translates it, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. As Leon Morris says on this passage, the trouble with the Hebrew Christians is they were acting as if they were spiritually paralyzed instead of keeping going. And so the writer of the Hebrews says, in the light of what I've been saying to you about Jesus, keeping your eyes on him and considering him, keep going and strengthen um, your, your weak, uh, your drooping hands and your weak knees. Now, um, I want to share with you something on this verse that I've not found anybody else say, but I think it's obviously implied in it. See if you agree with me. Is the writer of the Hebrews must have had in mind the place of prayer in strengthening us to keep us going. Because how did the Jews pray? Come on. How did, in terms of posture, how did the Jews pray? Yep. Uh, lifting up hands. Okay, and what was the other way? Come on, we do it. Kneeling. So if, if a prayer was very serious and a person was heartbroken, it was often... Uh, you know, about sin or particular problems, often by kneeling, praise was often standing with arms raised. And uh, don't you think there must be an inference here in prayer that the, uh, that the way to help drooping hands and weak knees is to use our knees to pray and our hands to praise? For isn't it prayer that sustains us? Isn't it, 
Isn't it looking to God and finding His strength that actually keeps us going? And then he goes on, in all your ways, um, uh, as Proverbs puts it, Proverbs uh, 3 and verse 6, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but be healed. Bring God into everything in your life. And the, the path is likely to be straighter and less bumpy and less dangerous if we acknowledge Him and trust Him in every area of our lives. And notice that verse 13 is not just about straight paths for our feet in running the race, but the your feet is plural, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We as believers have a responsibility for other believers, how they're doing, how they're going, to encourage them. I remember going when I was in Harold Wood to see a lovely Christian lady, one of our, our finest uh, Christian women, and she said, she hadn't been in church, and she said to me, um, don't worry about me, I'll be back to church when I'm feeling more up to it. And I said to her, but when you're feeling more up to it, you will be back to church. You need to be there when you don't feel up to it. Isn't that right? Because when you and I don't feel like praying or find prayer hard or are going through a difficult time, we need the prayers of other Christians and the encouragement of other Christians. That's why God uh, didn't call us to be solo believers and run the race without the support of Christ and the help of a Christian fellowship around us. No, and we need to have a care not only for straight paths to be there for our own feet as we trust the Lord, but for others too. And so it naturally goes into verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is a, a verse all about relationships. And turn back with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you notice that uh, there is a spiritual unity between believers that is God-given? And we're called not to create something that we can't create, but to maintain something that God has given us. Remember years ago when Lindsay and I went on the holidays in what has become now that it was then called Yugoslavia and the somewhat sad country it's become. Um, but we couldn't find a, an evangelical church to go to on a Sunday. We went to the nearest Christian church. We didn't understand the language. We thought we understood the Lord's Prayer and joined in within our own language. But there was a bond with the people. There was a real bond with real believers, and we knew there were real believers. Have you, have you experienced that as you've traveled the world? You've met Christians from elsewhere. You've hardly understood the language, but there's been a bond in Christ. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's God-given. And the writer of the Hebrews says, maintain, as, as Paul says, maintain that unity, or as he puts it here, strive for peace with everyone. As Paul uh, puts it elsewhere, as far as lies within you, live at peace with all people. 
It's easy, isn't it? Satan's tactics are boringly predictable. He either destroys a local church by an erosion of, of confidence in the Word of God and belief in it, so that it becomes unorthodox or wayward, or he actually destroys it by hurts and clouds between Christians, real or imagined. And the writer of the Hebrews says, as far as lies within you, live at peace with all people. Do you know somebody told me a most shocking thing recently is a, 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 a big evangelical church in the north of England, a preacher went and said, if you feel there's anything you need to put right with any other Christians here, put your hand up. And three quarters of the congregation put their hand up. Three quarters of the congregation of a big church knew that they had things to put right with other Christians. How do you think that affects the witness of the church and the effectiveness of the church? Hugely. How does it affect running the race individually and together? Hugely. And so the writer to the Hebrews says here, strive for peace with everyone as far as lies within you. It's not always possible. It doesn't always lie within us but as far as lies within us. Live at peace with everyone. As long as the truth of the gospel and the word of God is not compromised, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see what he's saying? Watch your relationships with one another and watch your relationship with God. That's how to run the race. And then he goes on... Um, Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Again, I, I want to see uh, you're absolutely with me, and um, uh, keep Clive fit. So uh, whoever uh, finds Deuteronomy 29:18, could you put your hand up and read it? Twenty nine eighteen. Yeah. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Okay. That's the background you see of this comment here. Thank you very much. A root of unbelief. And beware of that in, in one another and uh, guard against it. But there's also another kind of, of root, and the one that I've uh, mentioned, hurts real or imagined that can simmer on in a fellowship and cause problems that need to be sorted out. Watch these things. And then says the writer of the Hebrews in the next verse, in uh, verse 16, uh, that no one, uh, no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What did Esau do? The pleasure of the moment undid his birthright. And we live in a world which shouts at us again and again, the pleasure of the moment is what you need. You see, God's way m might be more difficult, but actually, it's a way that doesn't leave hang-ups and hangovers and heartbreaks today, tomorrow, next week, next month, or next year. Look what the writer of the Hebrews has already said in chapter 11. Look back at verse 25. 
uh, well, 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, the Bible doesn't say sin is unpleasant. In fact, sin can be very pleasant. But it's the kind of, uh, it's the kind of, the problem with sin is it leaves an aftertaste it leaves hang-ups and hangovers. It leaves problems. It leaves guilt. It leaves brokenness and impaired relationships and hurt and pain in its wake. God's way is the better way. And the problem with Esau, which we're to avoid, is simply being the slave of our passions, to consider that what our eyes see is what we need and rather to look for what God wants us to be and to do. Verse 17, for you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. It wasn't that uh, he couldn't be forgiven, but it was like David's sons. Do you remember when they rebelled uh, against David? And remember uh, David's own sin with Bathsheba is... um, which actually caused the problems in his family. David was forgiven. Look at Psalm 51 for his adultery with Bathsheba. He was forgiven, but he couldn't undo the consequences of it in his life and in his home and in his family. And uh, thank God you and I can be forgiven, and maybe there's some folk here this morning who need to come back and rejoice in the forgiveness of God and the new life that the Lord offers but sometimes we can't undo the problems of the past. Therefore, the Lord says through his word, run the race, seek to keep your eyes on Jesus, seek to run it in my strength and in my way, for that's not only the way that brings me glory, it's the way that is best for you. A friend of mine wrote a book in the Ten Commandments, it's a brilliant title called God's Good Life. You see, God is our uh, maker. He knows how best we should function. And when we try to function in a way that he doesn't prescribe, we find that things go wrong. Let me give you an illustration as I close. If, Lindsay, will you put your fingers in your ears? Will you promise not to tell her if I tell you this? I was trying to fix a plug a while ago and I couldn't find a screwdriver. Some people are ahead of me. And I borrowed my wife's best knife. And I used it, yeah, quite right. I used it on the, and what happened? I broke the top off the knife. Actually, she knows, and I've asked forgiveness. But you see, it was, the knife was never designed to be a screwdriver. And uh, used within its own function, it performed well. We're best, aren't we? We're safest in our master's hands. We're safest when we run the race for him. We're safest and we're at our best when we're walking with him. And we're most likely to be the the better father, the better mother, the better husband, the better wife, the better relative, the better friend, the better employer or employee, the closer we are to Jesus. Brother, sister, watch the drift. 
Beware of any drift in your own heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Consider him and long then more than anything else to be like him. And if you do that, you will run the race well and you will discover that when you get to the ticket tape at the end of our earthly existence, you'll hear something that actually we should all covet more than anything else. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful and strong, and we pray that you will simply write it upon our hearts, that your Holy Spirit may do what he needs to do in us. Maybe the things that need to be addressed, people that need to be talked to, where hurts real or imagined have come between us. Perhaps there's weights or sins that are hindering us in the Christian race. Perhaps we've been taking our eyes off Jesus. And we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And we thank you that you don't give up on us. But Lord, we do want to come back to you. We want to run the race with you. We want to keep our eyes fixed on you. We want you to be not only the pioneer for us of the race, but the perfecter of the race in us. Lord, we want to be more like you. We want to become more like Jesus. May your Holy Spirit fashion that in us and help us to run the race well without drifting that we may not waste our lives, but live to your glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Questions? We uh, have an opportunity for questions, and Sam's going to do the running now. I've done my bit, really. Um, now, whilst you're thinking of a question, I just think at least half the people here really want to know, well, did you buy her a new knife? <laughs> Restitution. <laughs> it's in the shopping list. Oops. <laughs> or should we just kind of pass over that? Uh, I, don't, I wish I hadn't raised that, Clive, but <laughs> <laughs> I will, dear. Yes, yeah, so that, that's, that completes the um, process. Um, John Saunders there. Uh, firstly, thank you so much for coming to us this weekend. It's been a real challenge and, and help to us. Thank you. Uh, earlier you quoted... Um, a comment from Billy Graham that uh, suffering makes us either better or bitter. Yeah. Can you give us any uh, help with how we would uh, approach people who have been made bitter? Well, I, I think it's... it's I'm all, talking about Christians now. Yeah. I think it's all about... Um, in the challenges of life, turning to Christ or turning away from him. And uh, really, we just need to get alongside suffering Christians or people who are finding it hard, love them, encourage them, and, and help them to see, as we need constantly to see, that the further we are away from Christ, the more dangerous it is. Um, 
you know, if, if what I've been saying in the book of Hebrews is all about drifting, um, it's very dangerous the further we drift. And the, the, the closer we are to the Lord, the more we seek in the frailty of light to look for him, the better it'll be for us, the better it'll be for our families. And we just need to convince people of that. And I mean, it's, it's a simple but profound point, isn't it? That if Jesus, the Son of God, who could have stayed in heaven without blame, came and lived among us in the poverty and squalor of the, of, of the time and the country in which he lived and the obscurity uh, of his, his earthly life and suffered in a way which Cicero called the worst form of punishment and death ever devised by man, and not only went through that suffering for us, but the incredible abandonment or the feeling of abandonment of the cross for Jesus. If the Son of God did that, it's inconceivable. If he was willing to do that because he loved us specks of dust, as I said on the seashore of time, it's inconceivable that he wouldn't have our best interests at heart. So the idea that we should be away from him is madness. It's just human madness. And we need gently to convince um, our brothers and sisters that that's the case. And sometimes just by staying with people. Um, you, you know, we often say, don't we, what, do, what should I say to somebody in this situation? I've no idea what to say. Well, actually, often it's best to say nothing. Just be there and just say, I'm praying for you. And as there are opportunities, share the kind of perspective I've um, been trying to share uh, with you. That makes sense? Over there, Sam, we've got Philip right in the corner. Thank you. As you alluded to, or explained, we suffer for a whole variety of reasons. Just because we live in a sinful world, because we're oppressed, because we're being disciplined. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm finding it hard to hear. Sorry, I'll speak. Okay. Is that me? So could no, you no, it's because I haven't got the microphone close enough. Um, as you explained, we suffer for a whole variety of reasons. Yeah. Because we live in a sinful world, um, because we're being oppressed. Yeah. Um, and that includes being disciplined uh, because we're under conviction for sin. Mm -hmm. you know? And our response to our suffering, to the suffering, um, will depend on the reason why we are suffering. Yeah. Um, it's quite easy in some respects to identify when we are in a bad situation um, or we're under conviction of sin. Um, we need to change. It's probably a little harder sometimes to identify when our suffering is specifically because we are being disciplined by Christ. Yeah. How do we identify that particular type of suffering so we can make the necessary um, changes to our lifestyle? Um, I don't think we need to because we won't always get it right. Um, I think we just need to have what Alec Matir used to say to his old students and said to Lindsay and I one day when we were talking about this very subject, you know, um, um, times of difficulty that you can't explain and you wonder why on earth, Lord, why this? And, and he's, he said to us, the sovereignty of a loving heavenly father is the pillow on which I rest my head at night. 
is uh, or to put it another way I love the illustration you probably know of Corrie ten Boom you know the great servant of God who lived through World War II and the concentration camps and saw her sister uh, badly treated by a prison guard and later led that man to Christ um, she, she said that life is like a tapestry rug is that we see one side of it which is a jumble of colors but God sees the pattern on the other side. Because if you, if you look at a pattern rug and then turn it over, it is a jumble of colors. Um, I, I see it often because my wife's crafty. She loves, you know, she loves doing craft stuff. And I, reg, I regularly see things that on one side of a pattern on the other side are a jumble of colors. We, because we have limited understanding and because we're sinners and we live in a fallen world, see a jumble of colors sometimes, and we have no idea. And what we need to do is to learn to live by faith, to trust God, to trust, to trust, and he's eminently trustable. If he could die for us, why would we not trust him, for goodness sake? Uh, but the, the uh, incredible thing about the teaching of the Bible is that God, uh, God has a pattern in all of it, and he works through, as I was talking to somebody last night, he works through even in situations where people don't know he's working. Uh, in the end, he saves a people for his own glory, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he not only saves his people, but he keeps them. And he calls us in those times not to turn away, but stay close. And if we do, then we'll find like the training in the gym that may be hard, we'll look back and say, God was more precious to me in that time. Um, one of the most moving experiences, I, I mustn't go on about, but uh, um, I mustn't go on too long on this, but it's such an important one, I want to make it to you. I was, when I was in Eastbourne, when I lived in Eastbourne and as Bishop of East Sussex, I was rung up by a vicar who said, uh, there's a young mum who's in Eastbourne General and she's been given three months to live. Will you go and see her? And I don't find situations like that easy. And you wonder to go and see somebody you don't know, and you wonder what to say. I went, I went prayerfully and uh, with something to read with her, which I did. But I didn't cheer her up. She cheered me up. And she said to me, I've got three children. Yes, I'm concerned about those and my husband. But she said, the Savior whom I got to know when I was a girl of 14, who's never failed me, won't fail me now, and he won't fail my children either. I can trust him. Do you know, I actually tell you, it rather chokes me. I, ca I came away, and that hospital bed and that part of that ward was a little bit of heaven. And I thought, who can do this? only Jesus. There's nobody that can transform a situation like that, give life and hope and confidence and even joy in the tears. Who can do this but Jesus? And she had learned that in this, you know, suffering makes you better or bitter, in her case, very much better. And my word, did her life have an impact? Um, probably said enough. Opportunity for a question? Somebody had 
Oh, didn't see that. Just going on from this theme of suffering, I don't like suffering uh, uh, at all. I mean, and, and I will undergo it if necessary, but, but I much prefer it, it doesn't happen. I, I suspect uh, that would be most people's, people's view. I entirely agree with you. I'd just like to come, uh, just mention two things. Uh, uh, Job, who lost all his children and was eventually restored, and the guy who worked at him, um, when peace like a river comes on my soul, the fellow who lost four daughters on honor, I think he lost his buildings in a fire, then he lost his four daughters on an Atlantic skip, and his response was to write that hymn. Um, uh, um, that, that's, a, that's a wonderful response. But at times, at time, if you look at Jesus, Jesus did say that uh, you'll, be, you'll be, in this world you'll have suffering, but the same Jesus also said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah. How, do, how do you reconcile those two things? Um. Yeah, let me see if I've got your, your question right. Well, uh, you, you, you've got to remember the, um, the context within which Jesus was speaking. Um, the burden the Pharisees put on people by a religion which was uh, do this, do that, do the, you know, keep this little rule in. You don't help somebody on the Sabbath because, you know, that would break. And they added to the Word of God their own human, and they put a burden on people. Um, I was very interested. I do, my wife and I did a house party some while ago in, um, uh, in Lausanne in Switzerland, which was a really hard place to go to for a house party. Uh, not... Uh, it, was, it was a lovely place to go, but we met this young couple who were conver converted uh, Muslims who'd become Christians. And she told me her story. She was a scientist who worked for some big company. Do you remember what it was? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Some, some big company in Lausanne. Um, but she said that she was brought up in a Muslim home, and she said, as she grew and thought about it, she said, God can't be like the Muslim view of God. If, if, if there's a God over all the world, he can't be that finickety nula. He can't, you know, be, uh, be that kind of remote and want this, 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 you know, a regimented, hard-bitten way of life. And she said, I, I can't see that a God would, would be like that. And although she'd brought up as a Muslim, one day she was walking down the street and she saw a Christian church. And uh, she went into it, there was nobody in it. And she sat down and she said, uh, God, I need to know you. And I think it was a Greek Orthodox church. Um, but an, an, an elderly priest came out and said, are you all right? And she said, I'm searching for God. And he said, did exactly the right thing. He said, you need to see Jesus. You need to be confronted with him. Uh, why don't you just read a gospel and off you go? So he, he gave her a gospel or gospels, and off she went, and she, she, she read it and said, this is, obviously, this is God. This is the way I, I think God would be. 
Uh, he's not like us. He's just far more wonderful. And it isn't a burden. You see, I, I mean, the burden of religiosity is a terrible burden, isn't it? You know, uh, I, um, I used to, uh, when I was a student, uh, they don't do it so much now, but in Croke Patrick in the west of Ireland, uh, people would go up barefoot up the mountain, barefoot up a 3,000-foot mountain, come down with their feet bleeding in order to get a plenary indulgence to get out of purgatory. And I would say to them, as I did to one of them gently, one or two of them, um, if you sin again, what happens? And they said, we're back in purgatory again. That's a shocking burden, isn't it? And, you know, that's under a Christian guise, but it's a long way from the New Testament. And that's a shocking burden. But when you come to, to Jesus, you find that all that we need to do to please God and be in his family has been done by him for us. And so that Christian living is, is not a drudgery. It's a response of love to somebody who's loved us so. So in that sense, his burden is, you know, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the way of Christ in so many ways, in terms of the way of joy and the way of the presence of the Spirit, the way of life and hope and forgiveness, the, the way of discovering the reason for which we've been made, uh, being in touch with God, being known by the Lord and loved by Him, in so many ways, you know, we need to make sure that we say this alongside whatever suffering is a way of joy and peace. Actually, it's a way of joy and peace even through suffering. So um, I think that's the context. But uh, and, and if you think of it like that, it's not hard to put those two things together. Um, because Jesus is always thinking about the end, the future. And what we need to say to one another, and this is so un-21st century, Western un-21st century, but the shortest bit of our lives on earth. You know, for the, for the pagan, actually it's pretty pathetic, isn't it? I, I've got to that stage where you 20 years you get ready to live life, 40 years, you live it and struggle to be established, and then you get sacked by the company or given a pension, and then you wait to die. I mean, that's what human life's about, isn't it? Unless you're a Christian, and you realize God has given you life, and he's given you eternal life, and you're here for a reason, and in his hands you can be a blessing and a means of blessing to other people, and you can discover what all of life is about. And actually, this bit's only that little bit of that bit that we have to live. Whose burden is, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light? <laughs>